You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I received a body of work from the 91 Investment Institute, the author of which is Michael Power, investment strategist at 91. And it starts like this. It says, looking forward to the year of the tiger after the year of the ox, after being pulled out of COVID mud, how will we leap forward into the future? Or maybe not, he says enigmatically. Michael Power is with me now. Michael, I'm particularly interested in this, apart from the obvious, going through your excellent presentation, your excellent piece of work, but also I'm a tiger in the uh, Chinese astrological process. So I'm interested to see how I'm going to do as well. Give us a general idea of why you put this piece together and the two main objectives of the piece, please. Well, at the end of the year, it's standard for people to say, so what's going to happen next year? And traditionally, there seems to be a bias towards being optimistic. And I'm very happy to spin the optimistic case. Um, But I thought this time, given what we've just been through over the last couple of years, it may actually be more worthwhile to highlight the risks and the opportunities. I say that also because I think the opportunities are bedeviled with the fact that valuations are not cheap, and that's an understatement, and that I think that looking at next year, the risk of of an event which will affect asset prices is not negligible. So the idea this year was, in contrast to all the other strategists out there telling the tale of how things are going to look wonderful next year, I thought I would just focus on the risks. And within that, I decided on trying to to distinguish between what I call the cyclical from the structural. Uh, And as as will emerge in the course of this interview, it's, it's rather important to say that there's probably a regime change coming in the cyclical, namely uh, monetary policy, particularly in the dollar world, is going to be tightened. But also that underneath all of this, and most analysts don't spend much time talking about the structural, I think there's a paradigm shift coming. I want to focus on not just the the cyclical, which is I think there's a regime change coming in the form of a tighter monetary policy coming out of the US dollar world. But most analysts generally speaking, don't spend much time talking about the structural. And I think a paradigm shift is coming. Uh, And that paradigm shift will be from a world which is centered on an overconsuming, underproducing United States uh, to an increasingly integrated, what might be called dual circulation um, East, uh, centered, of course, on China. Okay, so just to summarize, the two main objectives of your presentation, number one, to address the cyclical, is there a regime change coming? Number two, to address the structural, is there a paradigm shift coming? The scope of this interview does not allow us to go through the whole presentation, but I would like to go through your 10 risks for 2022. What might spoil the sunshine ahead? And start with the first one, global GDP growth, which seems at risk to me, Michael. Yes, look, I think that there is a sense of rah-rah out there at the moment that uh, things are going to get better. And that tends to be very much centered on the United States, which still Uh, where where many of the analysts from some of the leading houses still proclaim that U.S. is now the world's growth leader. It is not. China is still the world's growth leader in in not just in percentage terms, but in absolute total terms. They will add more GDP to the world likely this year and next year uh, than will the United States. The question, I suppose, is to look at the, the, the delta, the change, and there may be a rebound in the United States. So as we've just seen, their GDP growth which uh, the forecasters had in the middle of August at 7%, the outturn was 2% for the third quarter. So I think that we've got to be a little careful 
about some of these projections. So I think there is potential uh, downside risk to many of the more rosy forecasts with regards to GDP growth next year. Number two, inflation, which is a matter very close to my heart because I've been saying now for more than a year that I don't believe the transitory word which has suddenly been introduced to our daily lives by Jay Powell, the chair of the US Fed. I don't believe it is because I look at the CRB index every single day, which is the commodity index, and it shows that it's up around about 42% this year. Inflation is not transitory. Uh, even to statisticians, they must recognize that. You say inflation is not transitory, but transitionally higher for longer as the world moves between paradigms. Tell us more about inflation, please, Michael. I, I agree with you in your analysis, by the way. And of course, one has to underline the fact that the United States has got used to Arthur Burns's curse, which was to take food and energy out of the CPI index in the 1970s, almost to the point where they ignore food and energy now. And if uh, it's the rest that isn't actually moving, they assume that there is no inflation in the system. But as you rightly point out, there's a lot of inflation in food and energy. I actually think that food and energy are one of those areas that tend to be hit when paradigms change, paradigms move, partly because uh, essentially food and energy are common to all parts of the world. So um, if one particular part of the world starts demanding higher amounts of energy, higher amounts of food, some sort of tug of war starts to develop. And, and that tug of war is often resolved uh, in the price of the product being tugged. Uh, and in this case, it might be energy, it might be food. And so I think that there, that inflation is um, not just transitory, which is an overly cyclical way of thinking about it, but it's transitionally higher for longer because of the structural changes that are taking place in the global economy. Number three, stagflation. Over the years that I've been broadcasting, probably about 20 years now, Michael, I keep on hearing stagflation. It's every few years someone drags out the phrase stagflation. How do you assess the prospect of stagflation? Has the world changed enough to mean that stagflation will be condemned to the financial services or economics graveyard? Well, of course, stagflation is, uh, for most macroeconomists, the worst of both worlds. It's higher inflation and lower growth. Um, and I think that there are other issues that are now starting to play out. And one of them, interestingly, is demographics, which I don't think is being talked about nearly enough in terms of its effect on, for instance, the US labor market. But I, I think that we are potentially facing a situation where growth is harder to come by and inflation is less than transitory and is, is transitionally higher. Now, whether that amounts to 1970s-style stagflation, probably not. And uh, But nevertheless, I think we could end up with a, 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 a lower growth, higher inflation combination, which would uh, really scare the Western central banks, which are very much behind the curve at the moment, as, as everyone agrees. In fact, I've pretty much described Western central banking policy at the moment as a case of speak loudly and carry a small stick. Um, and uh, it seems to me that, you know, Christine Lagarde is excellent at that particular uh, characteristic, by the way. Mm. Um, the reality is that, uh, you know, not much is happening. And markets, to some extent, are doing the, the forcing at the moment. Uh, the talk in the last few days that tapering might happen slightly faster in the United States is, is, is directly brought about by markets basically not, no longer believing what Jay Powell says. Um, and indeed, I think that that will spread to Europe and, and, and probably to Japan, although Japan is a very special case. 
Number four, China adds to the slowing of GDP globally by deliberately engineering a slowdown as it redirects its economic model to one of quality over quantity. Question mark at the end of that one. What do you mean? Look, I think that the new talk that's coming out of China is that they need to shift the way that they've been growing. Now, a lot of the growth has been in things like property, um, and I think that the model is going to change. Uh, I, I, just an aside, and it's something which is often forgotten. The reason why Chinese property grew so much over the last 20 years is that since the year 2000, they've had to add housing to urban areas in China to accommodate 400 million people. That's 60 million people more than the United States of America. So it's not surprising there's been something of a, a, a sort of a housing bonanza over these two decades. It does appear now that the rate of immigration from rural areas into urban areas is now starting to, to fall reasonably sharply. They're not completely. There'll probably be 70 million people rather than 400 million people uh, over the next decade. Um, and the, at the margin, there's probably quite a lot of surplus uh, housing in, in, in China. So they don't actually need to focus on housing now to accommodate these immigrants uh, from the rural areas, and they can now start to focus on other things. And it, so I think that, that this is, you know, quality over quantity is a, is a bit of a glib way of describing what I'm talking about. But the idea now is that they're looking for technology-led growth, uh, the up, upgrading the quality of jobs that people are getting, uh, more consumer services, something that, that, you know, everyone's been calling for for a long period of time, but that doesn't mean that they're going to slavishly copy the West, and especially the United States. But generally speaking, it's a new direction that uh, is being taken by the Chinese economy. In many aspects, it may be more familiar to the Western eye. Um, but again, don't assume that it's going to, uh, to copy the Western model. Okay, potential risk number five. China pursues common prosperity aggressively, capping high growth by unfavoured sectors. I don't understand that one. Please explain. Well... Common prosperity basically means putting the middle class first. And uh, interestingly, if you go back 100 years to the time of uh, not F.D. Roosevelt, but Teddy Roosevelt, he did the same thing as a Republican president. He put the middle classes first. He went after what he then called the, the male factors of great wealth. This was the Carnegie's, the Rockefeller's, uh, even the J.P. Morgan's. Um, who made huge amounts of money, often through monopolistic practices. And, uh, and Rockefeller was, he ended up pretty much controlling the entire rail network of the United States. This allowed um, a certain amount of aggressive pricing and profit making and, and huge wealth. I mean, Rockefeller was said to have 1% of global GDP as wealth the day he died. That's huge. Um, and what uh, Rockefeller, uh, sorry, uh, Teddy Roosevelt did was to, was to go after them. And he, he didn't bust the trusts, as some people sometimes said. He tamed them. And what I think is happening in China at the moment is Xi Jinping is taming um, the, the, the monopolies. And today, you know, it's not a rail network we're talking about. It's an internet network. But uh, the same pricing power has accrued to a relatively small number of players, uh, and they've been able to make a large amount of profit. And, and what Xi Jinping has said, no. Um, you know, where there is a degree of monopoly, and this sounds like he's been reading Adam Smith, um, we're going to have to intervene uh, as the state to prevent this monopolistic practices. Um, and so we're going to cap high, uh, high growth um, in uh, unfavored sectors. 
um, and we're going to promote growth in, in, in sectors which um, are, dare I say, less monopolistic. Risk number six, Western observers are blind to the new reality. Many classify China as a non-capitalist embracing state-directed production. Yet is the West still capitalist if it practices state-subsidized consumption? Could Western capitalism yet come a cropper? I like this one because state-subsidized consumption, it's almost as though the United States should have, instead of uh, keeping interest rates at zero when inflation is rising, and instead of buying back their own bonds and mortgage-backed securities and that sort of thing, why didn't they just go to every single household in the United States and say, here's $5,000 a year, go and do what you like with it, but as long as you buy American? Well, they did pretty much, not every household, but a fair number of the households. And we can see that in the debt growth figures over the last couple of years. But it's not that debt wasn't growing even before COVID. Um, there has been uh, directly and indirectly a huge form of state subsidized consumption. Uh, just a little um, uh, uh, caveat there. Of course, they didn't insist that they buy American. They, they said you can go to Walmart and, of course, Walmart buys China for you. Um, and the result has been a huge amount of this extra um, uh, fiscal support, and that's the nice way of putting it, has ended up uh, flowing out of uh, the United States and into other parts of the world, and, and most especially into China. The, the, the irony here is that, you know, we do uh, think that um, the way in which capitalism gets corrupted is if the, the supply side uh, is influenced by the state, but we haven't asked the corresponding question, hang on a second, can capitalism be corrupted if we uh, essentially get the state to intervene on the demand side? Um, and I think that's what's happening at the moment. And, and to some extent, the West generally is not being called out because they're actually corrupting, dare I say it, the demand side, even as they accuse China. I think China, to some degree, is not doing it nearly as much as it used to uh, of corrupting the supply side. Number seven, other regions of the world. We've been very China and US centric so far, but now you start to talk about other regions of the world, which remain for now hostages to the central US-China symbiotic, but ultimately unhealthy relationship, you question. Europe piggy in the middle, Japan going nowhere slowly, emerging markets, and we can go on from there, or rather you can go on from there, Michael. Yes, I think Europe at the moment is struggling to redefine itself. One of the most interesting pieces I've read this whole year has been how the, the middle stunt in Germany, which is really the industrial backbone, not just of Germany, but in many respects of all of Europe, um, has been uh, feeling the intense competition, rising competition from China. And uh, this, to me, is something which would uh, raise all sorts of alarm bells. We've been through this before, a couple of high-profile examples. You know, for a time, uh, Germany, we looked to them as, as the world's number one solar panel producer. Well, they're absolutely nowhere today. And I think eight out of 10 of the largest solar panel producers in the world are in China. Uh, likewise, we've seen it in terms of wind turbines. Um, it wasn't so much German and German and Danish companies, Siemens, investors. We're now beginning to see huge competition coming through. Uh, from the Chinese, and the Chinese now have built the largest wind turbine in the world, and uh, Vestas no longer has that. Siemens merged with Gamesa of Spain as a sort of defensive merger, but I think they are also starting to feel that pressure. But it's not just in those renewable energy spaces, they're relatively high profile, but in, the, in, in, in really the backbone of the German system, we're now seeing all sorts of competition coming through from 
from Chinese producers. They may have actually bought products from Germany in the first place, reverse engineered them and found an easier and cheaper way of making them. I don't know quite how they come to be so competitive in these spaces, but across the board now, uh, China is now starting to appear in spaces that were previously uh, dominated by, by, by these German industrialists. And I worry about that because I, 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 then what does Europe become? You know, it can't um, uh, just become, or maybe it can, you tell me, um, a sort of glorified Disneyland for Chinese tourists. Mm. Um, you know, it's going to have to do something more than that. Um, but uh, I worry that, um, you know, industrially, um, uh, it will, will find itself squeezed uh, from all sides, and particularly, of course, um, from Asia. With regards to Japan, uh, you know, it's a... It's an ongoing story in Japan. The great thing about Japan are there are a number of individual companies in Japan that are doing spectacularly well. They're in high-tech spaces, robotics, for instance, being a very good one. Um, and there's still some great investment opportunities in Japan. But Japan as a country doesn't seem to be going anywhere at the moment. Obviously, it has demographic issues. And in that regard, you know, the West is now following them. But, um, you know, there, we have a new prime minister, and the first thing he did was write a huge check, uh, which is basically going to be handouts to, you know, the people of Japan, uh, another case of state-subsidized consumption. I mean, the Japanese, to some extent, pioneered the concept of, of state-subsidized consumption. So you can't really see where Japan is going, um, and uh, except for uh, a couple of truly excellent companies. Well, so Emerging you- markets are... Sorry, Michael, just what you said about Japan is, is mirrored in, in a slightly different way with what you said about the United States. A few really good companies doing very, very well and the rest not doing so well. And therefore, the U.S. stock market thriving on the, on the coattails of those companies that we're all so familiar with. So Japan and the U.S. also seem to be in tandem. What about emerging markets? Uh, I think you're right, by the way, on the U.S. And, and hopefully we can mention the, the, the sad tale of Boeing later in the interview. I think emerging markets broadly divide into two categories, um, and that is the sort of the Asian manufacturers on the one hand uh, and the commodity exporters on the other hand. Um, And I think both um, have a slightly different story to tell at the moment. I think the East Asians are to some extent waiting for a new age, uh, China to emerge. Uh, and then uh, Asian consumption in the sort of dual circulation, supply, demand, matching each other uh, economy that will emerge in Asia, um, benefiting all the East Asians as, as, they, as they find their niches in a, a number of spaces, often in lower value added parts uh, of where the new concentration focus is in, in China. So, you know, Vietnam has been doing very well in, 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 in things like cell phone production, uh, Bangladesh in textiles. Um, so I think these guys are, are to some extent in a slightly becalmed situation at the moment, but it's not a bad one. I think commodity exporters obviously are in a bit of a sweet spot at the moment, though, you know, you always have to ask how long will that last? Um, I think that the, 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 the underlying story in commodities at the moment, and, and this is my, you know, I actually have make it a separate discussion, is that there is actually a a paradigm shift going on in commodities at the moment. Yes, there are cyclical forces at play and some commodities will be subjected to the normal cycle. But uh, those commodities that can actually uh, cross over and be classified as essential to renewable energy production could have a 10-year period where they do wonderfully well. So 
um, the, the the story I was talking about at the beginning is is to some extent repeated precisely uh, in the world of commodities. Commodities are fascinating to me. I mean, I look at uh, my own consumption patterns, Michael, and I don't eat dairy anymore. So I go down to my local supermarket and I buy a product which was originated in Sweden called Oatly. It's oat milk, and it's the same. You put your oat Indeed. milk in tea rather than cow cow's milk, and I, I see that the price of oats on the CRB index have risen by, I think, 98% this year. It's extraordinary the, the, the way that things are changing and how it, affect, it affects the supply-demand equation of commodities. Absolutely. And, and you had to expect that, you know, there would be a consequence if suddenly everybody switched overnight from, uh, yeah, as it were, oats to, um, milk to oats. Yes, indeed. Tell me about commodities. Traditional cyclical forces. This is your sunshine obliterator number eight. Tell me about commodities in general, not just oats, of course. Look, I think that commodities I like at the moment are what I call the lycocuneals, which is my um, mnemonic or acronym for uh, lithium, cobalt, copper, nickel and aluminium, uh, all of which are going to be heavily used in the renewable energy. I think manganese is interestingly also now becoming a, a hot topic for all sorts of reasons. And then, of course, all the rare earths. It's more complicated when you move into areas like uh, iron um, and, all, of course, all the energy complex. Um, but I, I think that commodities really need to be uh, looked at through the prism now of how vital are they to the, um, the issue of fighting climate change. Um, and uh, if, if they can uh, find a place in the renewable energy firmament, um, I think they're broadly speaking going to be doing much better and, and not subject to the same degree of cyclicality that, that, that some of the others. And most of the agriculturalists, I think, probably, though not all, uh, could be uh, pretty cyclical. I mean, you know, what's happening in coffee and cocoa and things like that, I think, den tends to be uh, fairly cyclical and is often driven by supply interruptions as a result of, uh, of, of weather, for instance. But um, commodities, I think, is a very, very interesting place at the moment. Certainly um, is. And I think that if you're on the right side of it, you're going to do very well. Yeah, volatility will abound, I think, in 2022. Number nine in your list of risks is cryptocurrencies. Now, when I see Ecuador, most people don't even know where Ecuador is in the United States of America, maybe even South Africa, maybe in lots of European countries as well. But Ecuador came out proudly about three days ago and said, well, we're going to build this new city in the desert, which is going to be funded by a Bitcoin bond or Bitcoin bonds. And I think to myself, that's a warning sign to me. What do you make of cryptocurrencies? I'd love to know because I don't understand them. Well, I'm Agreeing with Jamie Dimon, not in everything that he's recently been saying, but I agree with what he says about cryptocurrencies that ultimately they're, they're worthless. This doesn't uh, stop JP Morgan from offering a service to trade them. Um, but I think they're trying to tell us something. And I think what they're trying to tell us is that, that you know, the whole logic of Tina has driven up valuations in many asset classes to the point where people are getting uh, subconsciously or consciously scared. Uh, about what might happen to their wealth if 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 these dare I say it bubbles uh, were to, were to, to to burst, and I think people are starting to put a little bit aside. Um, and one of the places they've been putting it um, has been cryptocurrencies. And I think what this is sort of and it's often dare I say it found in a sort of slightly more libertarian person. Uh, they tend to favour the the purchase of, of of cryptocurrencies. They're sort of worried about. Um, the, the, and I use this term in the other meaning, devaluation 
of Western currencies that, are, that is going on as a result of the high levels of debt finance that was actually there even before COVID, but has obviously been on steroids, steroids since COVID. So I think cryptocurrencies have become a sort of lifeboats um, and, and people have been putting their money in them in the hope that um, that they will survive what they think might be consciously or subconsciously the coming storm. Just uh, by the way, yes. uh, I'm not, uh, and I did say here at the end, and it's a big point, that China launches its own cryptocurrency in the form of the ERMB in, in uh, I think, February next year. And I think this could be a crypto on a whole different level. And uh, I do not talk about the, the ERMB in the same way as I talk about other cryptocurrencies. We'll talk about that after it's launched in February, Michael, uh, in 2022, the year of the tiger, my year. Five wildcard Cs, you say, is your number 10 risk. Uh, number one, COVID-19 returns, climate change events, currency fault lines appear, Chinese political issues surface. Congress becomes wholly Republican in November. There's a lot of Cs there and some disturbing Cs as well. Yes, and, and look, I mean, I don't need to add to the what is now, as it were, leading the news wires uh, on COVID. I just think think it's going to you know, linger longer with us than we uh, ideally want. I think where we should probably focus now is, is more on the treatment of COVID than, than, than the prevention, not that we aren't continuing wherever we can with you know, in, inoculations. But I think the most interesting areas probably are the, are the pills. I see the Israelis came up with something this morning that, that is very effective, that are going to be used to treat people who've got COVID. So leave that on one side. I think climate change is, is, is you know, still going to uh, cause problems. I saw uh, John Kerry speaking the other night saying that last year, one third of Americans were affected by fire. Another one third of Americans were affected by floods. And they were both climate change related. And I think COP26 was a case of Lord make us green, but not just yet. Um, and uh, if you see what's happened, for instance, in Delhi in the last month, um, they basically had to shut down schools and, and huge parts of the city because of the, the smog, the, the, the basically bad air um, that they are now finding themselves in the middle of. Yes, and talking about that, I saw a documentary uh, called Life at 50 Degrees, I think it was, and it was either Delhi or maybe another major urban centre in, in India, and people just suffering so badly because of the intense heat, which they've never experienced before. It's affecting everyone's lives. And I, again, it's not transitory either. It's not cyclical. This is man-made. And that will have, you know, a debilitating effect over a longer period of time. It's not cyclical. No, it's not. Uh, we haven't got time to go through the whole presentation, but I like the really big what if slide that you've sent me. What if the elephant in the room is not the Chinese dragon, but the American buffalo? And what if that American buffalo is wounded? In the African bush, there is no animal to be more feared than a wounded buffalo, dot, 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 you say, sort of teasing me. What do you mean by that? Because I know from the one experience where I really felt in danger of losing my life was when I was in the bush somewhere with a ranger. We went out on a walk and he had his gun and I was trotting along as a callow Englishman. And suddenly this buffalo appeared and he said get behind that tree so I did immediately but it is a scary prospect it is a scary prospect and I think again uh, many of the analysts in in the global economy often are working for U.S. institutions or live in what I call the dollar world and they are blind to the fact that there are some major issues beginning to emerge with the health of the American 
uh, economy. And I'm not talking cyclical here, I'm talking structural. I think demographics is starting to weigh heavily uh, on the growth of the U.S. labor market. It's obviously not being eased by things like immigration at the moment. Uh, and I think this could cause a, a real problem moving forward. I think that the debt level in the United States is off the charts. Um, the U.S. is some 4.3% of the world's population, yet they have 34% of the world's uh, debt. Um, and I think that is something which is going to hit us hard. I'm not sure they're doing as brilliantly in the world of tech uh, as we think they are. And the story of, of what happened uh, at Boeing is a tragedy. And it wasn't the Chinese that beat them, it was the Europeans. Um, but the tragedy of how Boeing is now suffering, and I believe at the latest Dubai Air Show, they, they had single-digit new orders, uh, whereas uh, the Airbus had um, well over 250. Um, and so uh, I think there's, a, there's something else happening. I, I think if you've been following what's happening in the, in the world of uh, quantum uh, co computing, uh, the Chinese appear to have come through and completely blown what Google's been doing out of the water. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're, they're not as winning uh, in, the, uh, in the world of tech as often we're led to believe. And the, the trouble is that America's definition of tech is often focused on either the cell phone or the, or the tablet. Uh, and uh, if, if whatever it is that you're doing isn't, you know, accommodated one way or another between the cell phone or the tablet, that isn't tech. Well, I'm sorry, I don't, that, my definition of tech is much, much broader than that. And I think that, you know, the Chinese have been doing brilliantly in a lot of the other areas, uh, even if they may still be you know, somewhat behind in the world of um, the cell phone and, and, and the iPad. Um, I think the other thing, the thing that really, I think, ultimately worries me is that uh, the United States is now, with 4.3% of the world's population, 66% of the world's current account deficit. Uh, to put that in different uh, terms, of the net flows of global savings, the Americans are now consuming 66% of those net flows in order to balance their external deficit. And if they, the net flows of international savings doesn't meet that deficit, the dollar is going to fall. So while I'm not calling for the dollar to fall uh, next year, indeed, at the moment, relatively speaking, it's rising, though quick to note, the Chinese renminbi has been stronger than the US dollar, and not many people I speak to can explain to me why. Um, but I think that there is an issue potentially that 4.3% of the world's population consuming 66% of the world's global net mobile savings um, is, is, a, is an accident waiting to happen. It's unsustainable. So uh, there are all sorts of features uh, in the American system at the moment um, that I'm beginning to have um, some quite deep doubts about, and, and I explore, explore those in the rest of the presentation. Yeah, Michael, what a, what a fractured and ultimately then fractious world we live in. We have to talk uh, about what you've just said and apply it to asset allocation and the potential performances of certain asset classes. And the slide I really like and most investors will like is 2022 asset selection, the year of living structurally. Please give us your ideas of what might and might not perform. I started out by saying that I think that there is a chance given what Warren Buffett would call the margin of safety is so slim uh, for 2022, given the, the pumped up valuations that we see, that if there is an accident next year, it's particularly likely to manifest itself in equities. Yes, it could happen in debt, but debt can't 
you know, do much better than it already is. It has backed up a little bit recently, but the, my real concern is, is I suppose, equities. And I think that if there is a an event in the equity space, I think we can potentially think about using 2022 as a year to shift your portfolio to reflect structural uh, future rather than cyclical future. And I think this underlined, and I saw some fantastic piece from GavCal yesterday, how they basically are now structurally, you have to be shifting to Asia. The timing of that shift is is difficult. You can't, you know, always say to people, right, that means sell all your U.S. shares now and buy Asia. That's probably not the right thing to do. But if we are presented with an opportunity to do that with a pullback in share prices next year, it might be the right thing to be doing uh, when that happens. Um, the debt story, you know, we're seeing yield creeping back into Western bonds a little bit in the, you know, as we've noticed, the, 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 the yield curve has been flattening in the United States. The front end has been moving up, but uh, there's still not a lot of value and we're still in most cases um, a negative real in terms of yields. Uh, so from a point of view of investors, you know, it's, it's a question of whether you're drowning in 10 feet of water or two feet of water. Well, actually, either way you're drowning. And I think that's the point with a lot of debt at the moment. Of course, again, it favors Asia because in Asia, some of the bonds and some of the credit and some of the currencies even are, are still giving you a real yield. I'm not talking about you know, property bonds in China. I'm talking about there's a whole lot of other bonds besides. And we've seen the flows of, of money into Hong Kong in terms of Chinese government bonds have been extraordinary over the course of even this year. Cash, hey, Cash is always a problem for any investor. Like, you don't want to have it sort of sitting on your portfolio doing nothing. You're not getting a real return. The one thing, however, it must be said about cash at the moment is that the strength that it gives you if there is a correction in terms of the firepower that you will then have to exploit the opportunities that are going to arise as a result of that correction. Commodities, not all are created equal. I still think there's something to run in in, in energy and particularly in gas. Um, but above all, I like the lycocuneals, as I mentioned earlier, those materials that are going to benefit um, from the structural changes towards renewable energy. Currency, obviously, the dollar is doing reasonably well against at least the DXY at the moment, um, but it's still underperforming uh, the Chinese renminbi. And, and while I'm not going to give you an answer as to why I think that is the case, no one should be proceeding at the moment without thinking, why on earth is the Chinese currency outperforming the American currency. And they need to have a good answer if they're essentially going to say, notwithstanding that, I'm still going to bias myself long term towards the United States. Alternatives, gold, cryptos, private equity, I'm not really going to make too much comment on. I think that with gold, uh, the point about gold is that you basically have to watch it as a measure of what might be happening in the system. Cryptos to some extent as well. Um, private equity is an insider's game, um, and it doesn't always work out, as we've seen, for instance, in the uh, Indian IPO of, I think it's called Paytm, which has uh, really been uh, not a particularly successful uh, story. So it, it can be either way. It very much depended on the individual uh, stock that you're talking about. Michael, thanks so much for your time. Michael Power is a strategist at 91 in Cape Town. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position 
or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer, or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.